Well, we're going to think about uh, unity again tonight, and we'll think about it from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And if I, I, if I speak a little slower than normal, it's not because I've been living in the South for so long. It's because uh, Deanne and Renee fed me over the course of the day, and so I'm, I'm laboring against an impediment uh, at, the, at this point, the impediment of their incredibly gracious cooking. Uh, which was delicious and delightful, but might slow me down here. And so uh, let's, uh, let's just pray that God will help. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1, is, is the turning point of the book. Not, not every book is as perfectly balanced uh, as the book of Ephesians. In Romans, you get 11 chapters of doctrine, and then the rest, five chapters... Uh, is 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 application, but Ephesians is just, to my mind, uh, the the perfect balance. Chapters one through three, experiential doctrine. It's often said that chapters one through three are doctrine. I don't think that does justice to what's actually there. There's all kinds of prayers in Ephesians one through three that doctrine might be experienced, that we might know how deep and how high and how wide is the love of Christ. Then Ephesians 4-6 through 6 is practical experience. How, how you move that experience doctrine out into your daily life. And it really comes home. Occasionally I'll have someone come up to me in a manual and say, Preacher, you've really gone to meddling. And that's what Paul does in Ephesians 5, 4, 5, and 6. He gets right into your marriage and right into your work relationships and your parenting and right into how you use your money and why you go to work. And he gets really into the practical details of godliness. He pushes godliness out to the fingernails and he makes sure that it's getting right out to the tips of our very being. And, and, and Ephesians 4 is right there at the linchpin, right there like a door hinge, right right there at, at the turning point, if you will, of the entire book. And it shouldn't surprise us that what Paul nails right at the beginning of the turning point of the book is unity. The end result of all this experiential doctrine is a united church, united marriages, united homes, that's, that's Paul's goal. He's, he's moving from God being reconciled to man and united with man and there being one new man, the Jew and the Gentile, now one in Christ, to how you live out being unified. And can we just all agree that it's easier to sign a doctrinal statement on church unity than it is to live it out? Much, much easier. Fellowship with doctrinal statements is much easier than people. That's why some people like doctrinal statements so much. Just sit alone with your computer. Find a few blog posts that you love to love. Find a few blog posts you hate to hate. And, and then just be alone with the truth stated on paper. But people, people are infinitely more challenging, aren't they? And yet, that's where God would have us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, is in the context of people. And so the Apostle Paul says at this linchpin, at this hinge of the book, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, in light of all this doctrine, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so what would be worthy of the calling? What kind of a life would be worthy of the calling that we've just received? This life. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then just in case you didn't catch Paul's emphasis on unity, he's going to use the word one seven times. 
There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, Paul says, I therefore, in light of all this doctrine that I've taught in Ephesians 1-3, through As a prisoner, someone whose example you can follow, I'm willing to suffer for what I'm teaching. I want to urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. What's, What's worthy of the Gospel? What's worthy of the Gospel that unites God to man is men and women being united to one another in the church. That's what's worthy of that. And and then he says, you've got all this in common... You've got one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one Spirit. You've got all of that. And so I want you to live out this unity of the Spirit that Christ has given to you and accomplished in Himself. So, that's what Paul's doing here. He's moving the letter along from how God reconciles Himself to man to now how we're to be one in the local church. But what he does along the way is he recognizes that when it comes to church unity, like so many other things in life, character is the key. Character is the key. So, just watch the passage a little bit. We're still just going over it. We sort of flew over it at 30,000 feet. Now let's fly over it at 20,000 feet. Come a little further down. I, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he gives us the character with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And what I want to say is that what Paul is saying is, walk in a manner worthy. What way is that? A way that's eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What's sandwiched between those, Paul? The character you're going to need to do it. You're going to need to be a kind of person in order to do what Paul is talking about. Now, uh, Daniel Doriani is a preaching professor. I believe he's in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. And he's written some books on preaching. And he's got one book on application. How do you do uh, application in preaching? And uh, in this book on application and preaching, since most of you aren't, uh, you know, your nightstands may not be covered with the next preaching book you're going to read. Uh, I'll just summarize it for you here tonight and spare you the, the grief of having to read it. But in this one book on preaching, he, he lay, lays out four areas that a preacher can focus on in application, applying God's Word to God's people. And the first is duty. The first is duty. People need to be told, what to do. You, you, need, you need someone to spell it out for you to explain what your duty is as a Christian. So husbands, just wing it. No. No, husbands, love your wives. There's a duty there. Wives, just make this up as you go along. No. Wives, submit to your husbands. So we shouldn't get the idea that, that duty was something that's only there in the Old Testament law. When we're applying the Bible, we have to spell out the duties. What, what do you want to do? And sometimes people think, oh, that preacher's just focusing on duty. Uh, he's such a legalist. No, the number one advocate for duty is the Lord Jesus Christ. Go therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Everything... I have commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. So part of application is just helping people understand, what am I supposed to do? You know, so young Christians are like, how do I grow? I was actually sitting with a young Christian just the night before I left. And I said, if you just come to church regularly and sit under God's Word, you will grow. If you, if you water the plant every day, guess what happens? It grows. But she needs to know, Hebrews 10.25, don't neglect the gathering yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But get together. So there's a duty that needs to be explained. Well, then Doriani goes on and he says, not only is there duty, 
But there's character. Not only when we're doing application do we tell people what to do, but we need to tell them what kind of character they need to do it. Because here's what happens. And if this has ever happened in your home, forgive me for mentioning it. But you get a guy, goes home, and he says, I'm supposed to lead, and you're supposed to submit. It's in the Bible. Like, well, you got the duty. We got that one. Good. This one for four. But, but, but you don't have the character. Um, one preacher puts it this way. Just because you have the checkbook in your pocket doesn't mean you have the money in the bank to write the check. Right? You, you might have the official authority to admit, some, to call for something, but you actually don't have the investment of character to actually be very effective in pursuing something. I remember I had an older lady in our church. She died a number of years ago and she said, this is a Southern Baptist context. She said to me, why don't you insist they call you brother? And uh, part of the reason I didn't insist that people call me brothers because I think we're all brothers and sisters. Not just the preacher's brother. But as soon as you're insisting that anyone give you any title, you've already lost all the battles. If you've got a demand that you get a certain degree of, uh, of, of respect... I can guarantee you don't actually have that respect. One person has said pastoral authority is like soap. The more you use, the less you have. (laughs) And so we don't want to use up all our authority. So there's duty and there's character. Two quick ones just so you know what he goes, what he goes on to say. The other aspects of application are discernment. So it's, it's, it's a helpful application when, when preachers teach us what the difference between a Mormon and an evangelical is, or when we, we learn that submission doesn't mean turning your brain off. Discernment is an important piece of application in preaching. And then, of course, teaching people the goal of their lives, that, that we're to live for the glory of God, or that we're to live as missionaries to our culture. To, teaching them the goal doesn't answer every detail of how I live my life, but it, it gives me the big thrust of why I'm here on earth. So I was sitting around with my kids around the dining room table the other day, and they're all at school, and they're seeing the ungodliness around them at school, and they're coming home and saying kind of, You know, things that show they understand how wicked what is around them is. And that's a good thing. As a a dad, you're glad when you see your kids noticing wickedness and not being attracted to it. But I said to them, I said, "I'm, I'm glad that you notice wickedness and you're not attracted to it. But you're actually called to be missionaries in the middle of it. You're called to, you're not called to despise those who are wicked, but to love them and to see them one to the truth. And so that's a matter of the goal. The goal is not just knowing right from wrong. The goal is living for the glory of God and living as a missionary in a lost world. So Doriani spells out the difference between duty. What am I supposed to do? You gotta teach unbel- you gotta teach new believers and old believers. Just what am I called to do? And then you gotta teach character. Who do I need to be in order to do it? And then discernment is figuring out exactly what's right and exactly what's wrong. And then the goal of your life is what's this all being put together for? What's this for? Well, tonight I want to focus on character. What kind of character needs to be present in each individual in the local church so that the whole church can be unified. And I think this is especially important for this congregation because I would imagine that you know many, if not most, of the duties spelled out of the New Testament. You know what the Bible says to do. But isn't it true that there's a world of difference between knowing what is to be done and having the character that's actually able to accomplish it? I heard one older preacher ask a younger preacher one time, what is the biggest difference between being a Christian when you're 30 and a Christian when you're 18? 
And he sa- the younger preachers answered very wisely, and those of you who are young should listen to this, and those of you who are old too. Um, he said, when you're 18, you're just making big decisions. Do I believe that God is sovereignty, sovereign over salvation, or don't I? Do I believe that men are the heads of their homes, or aren't they? Am I going to go to this kind of a church or that kind of a church? You're making the big directional decisions. Am I going to go to university or am I going to get a trade? You're, you're making the big directional decisions early in your life. And at 30, he said, you're just putting one foot in front of the other, trying to implement those big decisions you made earlier in your life. Now, if you're here and you're young, that stage in your life where you're making those big decisions... That's an important stage. You you need to think biblically and wisely about what direction you will set your life. But those of you here who are 30 and over know it's the implementing of it. It's actually the harder task. It's, It's actually the following out on these convictions and walking them out for decades that's actually the harder path. Not trying to demean the decisions we make in our youth. They're vital. Make the wrong ones and it's mission impossible. But even once you've made the right understanding of duty and you know which path you're supposed to follow, it still takes divine and supernatural and daily help to do it. And what's required is character. And so it should not strike us as legalism at all. When Paul begins to tell us what kind of character we're going to need to keep the unity of the Spirit of the bond, in the bond of peace. And we should be helped and we should receive it as a gift from the Holy Spirit that our Father loves us enough to tell us what needs to be needed into our soul so that we can be the kinds of people who don't just know what to do, but have the kind of character to actually do it. And so it's a blessing to us from the Father who loves us to be told we need these four virtues. Humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. And you know, before I even preach a whole sermon, you can probably sense immediately how the absence of those things would make for a disunified church. Let's just make them, let's just reverse them. Proud, rough, impatient, and won't put up with no nonsense ever. That sounds like a recipe for a church of ten people, most of whom are related. I tell people all the time, and I'm not bashing small churches when I say this at all, anyone can pastor 20 people. For whatever reason in the history of the world, 20 people will stick together no matter how much they despise each other. I don't know why. It's just observed over time. What's amazing is to have 20 people or 200 people who love one another and have a warm unity in the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the first character quality, which is so vital for unity, is humility. Humility. The humble person does not think too highly of themselves. Right? They make an accurate assessment of themselves. The humble person is not someone who thinks they're trash. That's actually a false humility. You were made in the image of God. And because you were made in the image of God, you have an inherent worth and dignity. And it actually isn't humble when someone's walking around going, oh, I'm just useless, I'm just useless. You know who useless people always talk about? Themselves. The whole world's revolving around your uselessness and you keep drawing attention to this quite irritating fact. That's not humility. 
Humility is to take all that you are, and even though you're made in the image of God, to regard others as more significant than yourself. That's humility. Humility is not to be inherently trash, because humility is modeled for us in the most worthy being who ever was. The one who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is humility. Humility is when I recognize I have been made something, but I'm willing to give up all that I am for someone else. That is humility. And it's very, very important that Christians be humble. But honestly, it's shocking when Christians aren't humble. Because the Christian gospel is the ultimate humbler. Isn't it? Uh, we've been studying through the book of Romans at Emmanuel where I pastor in Louisville. And one of the things we've been focusing on a lot is Paul's repeated statement that we have nothing to boast about. So the Jew might say, well, I'm Jewish. Paul says, yeah, well, being Jewish is not going to get you into the kingdom of God. (coughs) Glad it's sealed. So, I, I find it funny that everybody you ever meet, including me, thinks they're from God's country. You ever found that? Texans especially. <laughs> but, but, but everyone has a sense that they're, they're from some perfect, awesome, great land. And what's amazing is usually the people you meet like this, they tend to be from the city that they consider the best in that state. And very often they also attended the best high school in that city. And and all of these things are ways that we mount up our own self sense of self-importance. And the gospel says, "No, you're not righteous. No, not one." You don't, you don't even seek to do good. You've got murder coming off your tongue. The ways of peace you don't even know. Uh, you couldn't be justified by the law and declared righteous for the law because you've never obeyed it a day in your life. And yet Christ has come to give you His own perfect righteousness. And so the Christian has nothing to boast about except Jesus. And so there's everything in the Christian gospel that should humble us. And yet, you find Christians, you you mention them, you know, I've noticed that your kids don't really listen to you. And, And your kids are really running amok. And all of a sudden, this person, it's like they read 30 parenting books last night. And they can't imagine you said anything like this to them. If you want to test a person's humility, don't try this at home. <laughs> Mention the imperfections of their children. You'd think they forgot the doctrine of total depravity. Or husbands and wives can sit under the preached word, praising God as being their only boast. And they get in the car and she says, Honey, And she's trying to be gentle because she's seen him before. When the preacher said, oh, he knows. knows. He's got defenses going up for days before she even gets there. And he's ready to defend himself with his own righteousness. This is not humble. Christy and I had this epiphany a number of years. My wife and I had this epiphany a few years into our marriage that we couldn't enjoy anything the other person did well because it threatened us. 
Every time she was succeeding, I'm like, yeah, that's good. I mean, mostly. And she was the same way towards me. And at the end of the day, it's because if I, if I acknowledge that you're just, this is great, the Lord's really blessed you here, then I have to kind of be in awe of you and I have to admit my own problems. And that's not humble. And our pride gets in the way of us actually celebrating the graces that we see in other people. And so we're called to a beautiful humility. There's a, there's a marvelous example of how this can go wrong in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and then a marvelous example of how it can go right. You remember 1 Corinthians 12? It deals with the spiritual gifts and all of the gifts God has given us. It reminds us that though we may not all have uh, the most exciting gifts or maybe even not the gifts we want, uh, we all have spiritual gifts that we're given to serve the body. And we're told this amazing thing. Every spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit. That is, when you do anything in the power of the Spirit, and especially when it's something God has gifted you to do, you show Christ to other people. As the poet put it, He's lovely in hands and lovely in faces, not His, to the glory of God the Father. He displays Himself through His body. And then you might remember this brilliant illustration that the Apostle Paul uses of how in the body we can have two what look like opposite problems. But really they're problems with the same root. And the problems go like this. One, my gift is so lame that nobody in the body needs me. And the other is my, my gift is so awesome that I don't need anybody else. And both of these problems, they're not two different species. They're both just different breeds of pride. Let me read it to you. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, this is verse, first, this is verse 14 of chapter 12. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Did you notice that? Just because you feel like a worthless part of the church doesn't mean you're right. Did you see that? Just because a hand says, because I'm not a foot, that does not, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. You, your feelings of uselessness do not get to become objective truth. You are a valuable part of the body. Because God made you in His image and placed you in His body, having saved you from your sin and given you the Holy Spirit, so you are part of what is necessary for the body to build itself up in love. Your feelings about it are immaterial. It is a fact. Now, you'll enjoy your life a lot more if you come to agree with God on this point. You'll, you'll enjoy... God's work in your life if you come to see that He's given you something significant to contribute, but you cannot believe your gifting out of existence. He says, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body, uh, where, where, if, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts of the body. So He's saying, listen, there's lots of different gifts. There's lots of different kinds of people in the body. And we don't want the body to be one big ear. That's gross. If you, if you were walking down the street and you're like, what did you see on the way in? There's a big ear on the street. You'd be, you'd be horrified. Ears only look good attached to heads. That's the only way they look good. In fact, every single part of the body, when it's detached from the other part of the body, is a horror movie. It's terrible. But each of us are part of the body. And so we're beautiful in our place in the body. 
Now, some of us have just, I tease people all the time, like some people, they, they got the gift of chair stacking. They're, they're good at it. They're, you know, everyone's leaving and they're looking around going, they haven't stacked the chairs. Why do I notice this? I don't know why you notice it, but you do. You have the gift of chair stacking. And where would the body be without the chair stackers? It's incredible. Now, you can despise yourself and say, I want to be a preacher. But being a preacher is overrated to begin with. Let me start there. But it's also wrong to think that just because you've got a particular gift, you're not needed. Like if I said to you, I just want to take a small organ out of your body today. Like, no, 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 my, my organs stay right where they are because they're all doing something. And each of us have been made part of the body. Verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. You know what um, God did in my life? As I was pastoring Emmanuel, um, and Emmanuel began to grow, and it began to grow even out of its building, just the same way your congregation is growing out, out of the size of this building, is uh, I began to realize that I was very bad at administration. And there was part of me that was like, but so what? I mean, what's administration? That's so secular. (laughs) Except, would you just direct your attention down to verse 28? And notice that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating. Administrating is a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit said, we cannot have absent-minded preachers running the show around here. We need some administrators. And, and in God's grace, a brother by the name of Ben Hedrick was brought into my life. And, and Ben gets excited thinking about systems. And about how there's going to be like enough lineups for all the people to get food and then how there'll be enough small groups for everyone to get discipled. He just gets excited about that. I get tired thinking about that. I just want to go have a nap, prepare a sermon, come preach it. But in the body, we don't just need mouths. In fact, a body with just mouths is a harmed body. And really, as you're in the season of life where the, the church is growing and you're like, wow, I hear on Sunday it's just packed out here. You're going to need all the gifts of the body, active and appreciated. And the only way they will be active and appreciated is if everyone values them. And the only way everyone will value them is if they are humble. Humility is what you let, is what lets you say, I actually have a gift. It may not be the coolest gift. I have a nerdy gift. That's okay. But it's a gift God gave and it's needed in the body. And you may have a gift and you may think your gift is just the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it's not. It's a dependent gift. It's a gift that needs other gifts. And all of this can be enjoyed instead of threatening if we have humility. And so, beloved, Focus on the gospel. Focus on it, not just when it's being sung in the lyrics on the screen, but when you get into the car and you hear a kid or a wife or a friend begin to say something that might insinuate that you're not just like Jesus yet, which you just finished singing about, at that point go, Lord, I have nothing to boast about. And so I have nothing to be threatened by if this person confronts me. And they can tear apart my righteousness. I'll be okay. I already have a righteousness that's not my own. So I can receive critiques against where I'm at in actually living out my righteousness in this life. Does that make sense? The second one is gentleness. Gentleness. 
I haven't been a pastor long enough to have too many mottos, but I, I've been a pastor long enough to have a few. And one of my words to live by in ministry is the tough guys are not tough. The tough guys are the guys, and they can be gals too, they're often gals, but they show up and they just look strong. They have strong convictions. And they say, I'm okay just hashing it out. I don't mind you know, hashing it out and talking about my opinions. That's okay. And, and then you just push them a little bit and they cry like babies and run home. There's lots of people that act so strong and so tough. And you think, well, he's a tough guy. I guess if I get in the ring and give him a few rounds, he'll be okay. But they can never handle it. And what I've come away with is that there just are no strong Christians. There's no strong Christians. You can take apples and put them in a barrel. If you place them in that barrel well, they'll be fine months from then. They're not going to be all bruised and battered. But pears are another story. Pears are just always a mess. They just always look like they're on their last leg. They're either like hard wooden or they're just mush in your hands. And Christians are pears. It's a pear religion. Or to put it in more biblical language, we hold this treasure in jars of clay. And since everyone in the church bruises as easily as a pear, we ought to handle them gently. What an amazing thing if everyone walked into church and just saw on each other's foreheads written, handle me with care. Handle me with care. And the Apostle Paul tells us to cultivate gentleness. It's amazing what happens in a wife's heart when her husband begins to use that authority God has given him in gentleness. It's amazing how different I'm the leader. It says you're supposed to submit is than, honey, I love you. I want to be a faithful shepherd. Can I show you what I think might be best here? That's a world of difference. Same authority, but restrained by gentleness. It's huge. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 for a second. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And here we're taught how to correct those who are in sin. And we're told that we're to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And it's very easy uh, when a child's been caught in a sin for dad to be like, busted! And yet, Busted, if it's, a, if it's accompanied by anger, never really wins the heart to greater obedience. Beloved, it's true that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And isn't it amazing how when you are, when you know you've sinned, and then someone comes at you gently, it doesn't lessen the conviction, does it? It actually doubles it. We sing a little song in our house. When you treat me kindly, it makes me happy. And it touches me inside. It makes me feel important, loved and special. And it makes me kind. Isn't God good when He asks us just to love like He does? Isn't God good when He asks us just to be so kind? Kindness and gentleness have this heartwarming effect on other people. Now, some of you are, are sitting here saying, well, boy, I am, I'm a very gentle person. But really what's happening is that you've actually never confronted anyone from their sin. And you, you've never actually restored anyone. You've never actually moved into a difficult situation and called someone to something better. 
And so you can feel gentle, but the reason you feel gentle is because you just have never actually done the work. And it's actually cowardice, not gentleness, that dominates your personality. When, you, when you've never gone into something difficult, then you're probably dealing more with the fear of man and a sinful desire to make peace rather than gentleness. Gentleness moves in to deal with sin and to get it out like a sliver, but it does it more like mom than like dad. In my family, my kids do not want me to take the slivers out. They run away. Let mom do it. And there's a certain biblical background for that. Not that dads should be bad at taking slivers. But when Paul talks about himself, he says, I was gentle among you like a nursing mother. Sometimes we get this idea that being a real man's man means you don't have any characteristics that are exemplified in women. Paul didn't think like that. Paul says he was at his best pastorally when he was like a nursing mother. And that's very gentle. Everything is soft and nourishing about that. And so we want to be people who get into people's lives regarding sin, but we want to be gentle in our tone. We don't just want to be gentle in our tone, we want to be gentle in our emphasis. One of the worst pieces of advice I ever got in preaching came from Francis Schaeffer. And I love Francis Schaeffer, so I don't say that lightly. And I don't think he even would have applied the advice I got the way I did, but I messed it up. The story is told that if Francis, that Francis Schaeffer said that he had an hour with an unbeliever, he would give them 45 minutes of law and 15 minutes of gospel. And the idea would be that the law drives you to the gospel. Now, if you have one hour with one unbeliever, that may not be a bad way to use the time. But I took that as my model for preaching in my earliest years of ministry. And I, I began to have sweet people, godly people say things to me like, it's like being whipped. <laughs> and, you know, there's part, there's part of you like as a you know, convictional preacher, you can walk away from that and think, yeah, well, the world needs more of that these days. You know, soft preaching and ear tickling. I'm not doing any of that. I'm, I'm whipping people to the glory of God. And then, and then you realize that it's the godliest, most tender people telling you this. And you start to think, I must be doing something wrong. I'm not being gentle in my emphasis. I'm not emphasizing their unity with Christ. The fact that they're already forgiven. The fact that they are new in Christ and loved by Christ. And, and there's a change. Husbands, you're going to be thinking about this and how you communicate with your wives. There's a change in the tone and the emphasis that's not just gentle by using a soft voice, but gentle in the truths that it deems the most important and the most important to bring out. Does that make sense? We want to be a people of gentleness. Now, in all likelihood, if you're like me and we've, you're hearing about this, there's, there's part of you that maybe the Lord is doing some conviction. Maybe He's showing some areas where, you know, I'm not as humble as I thought or I'm not as gentle as I would like to be. And I just want to say, would you remember that that's the gift of the Holy Spirit to you right now? That's, that's the Father's love. That's not Him chasing you down so He can condemn you. That's the Lord who's already forgiven you. Now, giving you the grace of exposing your sin so that you can repent of it and He can shower fresh mercy on you. All of this conviction is not proof that He really doesn't love me and that He doesn't even like me, but rather it's more proof that He loves you dearly and He rebukes those He loves. He chastises every son whom He receives. And so if your attitude is one of, that sermon was so convicting, well, that actually having that attitude about God's dealings in your life is what makes you so condemning to other people is that when you think God's constantly out to get you, you're invariably going to reflect that to others. But God is not out to get you tonight. He's not out to get you. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. And then now, He sends His Word and His Spirit to cultivate the character of His Son in you. That's His gift 
to you this evening. But it's not just His gift to you. It's His gift to the church. For God to make you more humble and me more humble and to make you and I more gentle is not just a personal gift that you're to receive, but it's a corporate gift that we're receiving right now. A more humble, more gentle people. What a precious act of love from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. We're not only to be humble and gentle, but patient. Love is patient. This is, in 1 Corinthians 13, is so convicting. Love is patient. Why do I say it's convicting? Because we say these kinds of things. We say, I really, 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 really love Him. I just struggle with patience. In other words, I want you to know at the core of me, it's all good in here. But then when it comes to application, something breaks down. I don't know what it is. And I get impatient. And the Scriptures come along and say, no, no, no. Love is patient. In other words, when there's a lack of patience, there's a lack of love. Which says something amazing about patience and love. That it's actually in the very nature of love to not expect quick results. Isn't that amazing? Something right in the very nature of love that says, I know this isn't going to work right away. And I know it will be opposed. But I'm going to press on in it. That's amazing to me. And, and it actually guards you, doesn't it? Because when you say, okay, Lord, they're really irritating me. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go do something really godly. And I'm gonna confront them really gently. So you call me, honey, I want you to know what you're doing is not pleasing the Lord. And then they offer one little piece of resistance and you're done. That's it. I'm out of here. You can't be loved. But patience is setting itself up. This isn't going to go well. They're not going to like me saying this right away. But I'm not out to get them to respond well so life is easy for me. I actually care about them. And since I care about them, I can tolerate the initial backlash. And I can tolerate the initial difficulty. And I can speak knowing that this is a long-term commitment to draw the best out of this person. Love is patience. It's patient. Love takes the long view. The story is told of Charles Simeon the great English preacher, the John Stott, if you will, of his generation, that Simeon, especially early in his uh, ministry or his life, had a, a temper, a serious temper. And uh, one time he was visiting another preacher's house, a guy by the name of John Venn, and he went over to John Venn's house and he, he lost it or got mad at the servant. I think the servant who was taking care of the horse. Simeon just got mad at the servant and left. And John Venn's kids, pastor's kids, are looking at Simeon going, Dad, that guy's got a problem. And John Venn said to the kids, go, go get some peaches. And it was late summer, and so the peaches were still hard. And it wasn't early fall where they were blossoming or ripe, I should say. And the kids brought back these peaches. And I think he had them bite into them, I'm not sure, but... Sure enough, the peaches were wooden and they didn't taste great. And Ven said, just a few more rains and the peaches will be ripe. And so it is with Brother Simeon. Just a few more rains. And, and love has this attitude of just a few more rains. And, and love wants to be those rains to actually bring that refreshing water. One of my 
favorite joys of having been a pastor for 15 years now, which is not long. I'm in the presence of two 40-year seasoned pastors, so I won't boast too much. But, but one of the things that I love about being a pastor for 15 years, as opposed to two years, is that two years you're like, this has to get done today. This person needs to repent, grow, and set a new trajectory by this week. And then they don't, and you're like, are they even saved? And after 15 years, you're looking at people going, wow, they've really grown. It's just been 15 years now. But, but I'm not kidding you. And it changes the way I look at the younger people because I see this mess, but I'm like, give them some time. Under the rain. Under some love. And they'll grow. And if all of us had this sort of John Venn attitude, God's peaches are going to they're going to ripen. God's fruit, it's going to grow. It makes it easier to love, doesn't it? If you know the sovereign saving God is going to work it out and make this person more like Christ. You might share a little something. One of the things that's fun as a preacher is that you preach something to someone about ten times and then after about ten times they come up to you and say, Pastor, do you know what I saw this morning in my devotions? Well, imagine that. Is that what you saw? <laughs> and that happens to all of us. We, we say things to our children umpteen times. And then finally, when you think there's no hope, they say, you know what I'm thinking, Dad? I'm thinking I should do this. Doesn't that seem wise to you? Oh, yes, son. Very, very, <laughs> very wise. Just a little note for parents. If you feel like you're repeating yourself all the time, then the book you sound like is the book of Proverbs. And it's probably because you're being biblical, not unbiblical. Proverbs 1, my son. Proverbs 2, my son. Proverbs 3, my son. Proverbs 4, my son. Proverbs 6, my son. Proverbs 7, my son. Proverbs 8, not that. Proverbs 9, my son. It's just, it's just over and over and over again. And the end result is a godly child. The end result. Not within a week or a month or a year. But seasons of love, rain, plenty of godly corporal discipline, and the Word of God, and then at the end of it, a treasure, Lord willing. And for those who are waiting on that, we'll pray. Those kids come around. Finally, forbearance. 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 To to bear with people in love. There's a lot you've got to overlook in the Christian life, right? I mean, there's things you can't overlook. Adultery, lying, deceit. They, they can't be overlooked. But artsy and flaky and too rigid and too loud too quiet. It's funny, sometimes I sit in elders meetings and I find that elders tend to gravitate into two categories of people. Big visionary administrative types and counseling guys. And the counseling guys, no matter what's on the agenda, they would stop it all if it meant talking about one person for three hours. And they're just so sweet. And the other guys are like, we, we, we have an agenda. And administration is a spiritual gift. And, and, and you're watching people bear with one another. And that's happening in the, that's happening in the church all the time. You got some people, they come into church, they I'm going to serve so many people. And other people are like, you're serving everybody, but you're moving awfully fast around me, like all the time. <laughs> and then you have some people that they're slow and thoughtful. And you're like, speaking is part of the image of God. Can you say something? Can you say something? And these are, not, these are not sins. But this kind of stuff can tear churches apart. Just rip them right apart. 
Because we read each other the worst ways possible, don't we? Just judging me with that silent face. (laughs) Judging me. And that person who's talking all the time, do they even think? Where there's many words, there's much sin. Much sin. You. (laughs) And to learn to bear with different cultural habits, different personality types, different people oriented towards different vocations. You know the difference between an introverted CPA and an extroverted CPA is? Accountant? Introverted accountant and extroverted accountant? When you talk to an introverted accountant, they look at their shoes when they, then they talk to you. When you talk to an extroverted accountant, they look at your shoes when you talk to them. There's pe- people people just, they can just rub us all kinds of wrong. And, and certainly those things are because of the fall, but they aren't necessarily sin. At least not the kind of sin that you point out in church discipline people for. And, and there just has to be all kinds of grease in the church so that the mechanisms and the relationships of the church don't grind to a halt around our awkwardness, our idiosyncrasies. We're to forbear with one another in love. In love. Now one caution about forbearance. One caution. One of the things I have found is that often and I mean this with reverence. I don't mean this is not. I'm not trying to make fun of this. I I have found that some of the most bitter Christians were people who were trying to forbear. And so what I mean is they they see something that bothers them and they think it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense and they try to overlook that offense. But eventually they find. They can't overlook it. It's driving them crazy. They think it's a sin. They don't say anything. They bottle it all up. And by the time they say something, it's bad. They blow up or they just walk away. So a rule Christy and I have sort of used is we're actually forbearing in love and we're actually overlooking an offense when we have joy about it. When we can look at that person, they're doing that thing that drives us crazy and we're loving them and it's warm. And we're actually overlooking it. But there is a point where we're not actually overlooking it. We're actually just keeping a record of wrongs and storing that up inside of ourselves. And at those points, it's often better to go and speak to that person than to let that go on forever because eventually it will blow. So don't don't let forbearance and love become a, a cause for a lack of wisdom that can lead to something very negative down the line. One last thought, and then we're done. Galatians, not Galatians, Ephesians chapter 4, where we are. It, it ends by saying we're to have humility, gentleness, patience. And then it says we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, just a couple little comments on this. One, I want you to notice that by your humility and by your gentleness and by your patience and by your forbearance, you are not creating the spiritual unity of the church. You're not creating it. It's not if I get in there and I'm humble enough and gentle enough, I will create the unity of the church. This has been a big issue for us. Emmanuel, the church I pastor, can see a lot of division along racial lines, especially in the heated political season we're in, people from different cultural backgrounds see the political landscape very differently and they come to church and bump into each other and it can be very difficult. And there can be a sense in which you have a feeling of like, how do we create this unity? How do we get this unity from such divergent people? And, and, the, and the starting point is, you don't create this unity. It was given. It was given when the Lord reconciled you to Himself and gave all of His people His Spirit. So notice the way that Paul talks about this. He does not say, create the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We have the unity of the Spirit. Anytime you've ever gone 
to a Bible study and felt that sweet fellowship from being with people who love the Lord, or you've done any active Christian service and loved that camaraderie from serving with people who love the Lord, you were experiencing the unity of the Spirit, and you were experiencing something you did not create, but something that Christ died to create. But we can mar it. We can harm it. We can refuse to obey this admonition to maintain it. To not maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And This word eager is fascinating. I want to read you a little commentary on it. The word eager literally can be translated spare no effort. Spare no effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Spare no effort and being a present participle, it is a call for continuous, diligent activity. There should be this constant humility and this constant gentleness and this constant forbearance, this constant zeal, this constant diligent activity to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Marcus Barth expresses the sense vividly. It is hardly, He says, it is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. The imperative mood of the participle found in the Greek text excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude, or a diligence tempered by all deliberate speed. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. That, that's what we're being called to, to a, to a diligent unity. Maybe there's someone in the church where you had some difficulty with. And now the next time you show up, you're not sure how it's going to be. Give them the biggest bear hug ever imaginable. Run to them. Love them. Embrace them. Don't let there be any sense that maybe there's still something lingering. Maybe there's someone, you've got a relationship, and, and you're, you're on your way to 70 times 7. You know? You, 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 we're probably somewhere about 65, 67. One preacher says, if you do the math with that verse, you've missed the point. <laughs> you're getting that way. That person should be the object of your special affection. You you should be trying to build warmth with that person, not just with the body in general. If someone has told you that you have a weakness in a particular area, even though you're stumbling at it, show them that you're trying to work on it. There's nothing embarrassing, more embarrassing is there, than being confronted in your sin and then you've got to try to do better badly. Right? Right? Because all of us, when we sin, we tend to, when we pursue righteousness, not do it very well. Like if someone says to you, you're really cool, as in you're not emotionally warm. And then we're like, okay, I'll try. And we're awkward. Be awkward to the glory of God. Even though it makes you look weak. Even though it exposes that you have a long way to grow. Do it. Do it all with all zeal. In gentleness, even if someone knows you to have a hot temper, let them say to them, I'm going to speak to you about something, but you're going to see me repent. I'm going to try to do this gentler than I've ever done it before. And if at any moment I'm not gentle, tell me, because I know I'm not gentle, because I can tell you that, because I also want to be humble. And you, you work at things. And beloved, it's amazing how many relationships that have been cool or just in, they're just in the same room. Can be, they can be warm. They can be like a bonfire of love. I have the privilege of serving at a church where I have offended a lot of people. Hurt a lot of people. Not, not cared for a lot of people the way I would have wanted to. But the blessing is, I actually have the privilege of having relationships with a lot of them that are warm or warming. And that's a glorious thing. To in weakness pursue that kind of unity to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What else could be worthy of the Lord who loved us and died for us? The Lord who is humble with us. We have a humble God who knows everything and can do everything. It's amazing. He's gentle with us. He's patient with us.
doesn't He bear with us in love every single day? Let's pray. We love You, Lord. We love Your Word. Lord, it's refreshing. It's encouraging. It cuts us to the heart. Lord, wherever You've moved in and convicted and cut, I just pray for sweet, sweet life-giving healing, forgiveness, just a reorientation of our attitude towards You that you, You confront us not because You hate us secretly, but because You love us openly. Lord God, I pray that You'd give such warmth and zeal and love to this congregation that it would be magnetic by the Holy Spirit to Kirksville and the world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.